Hi, Cody Royal back with you for Where Others Won't, episode 82. I've been wanting to have Wade Gilbert on as a guest since the very beginning of the show. He's one of the godfathers of coaching science, but more importantly, he's a confidant and truth teller to many of us in the industry. He's thoughtful, he's generous with his time, and I think he's the heartbeat of coaching. Where Others Won't. 82 is with Wade Gilbert. Wade Gilbert, my favorite pracademic. How are you, mate? I'm doing well. Thank you for bringing that term up again. I, I, I try. I, I'm, I'm one, one of many, uh, but I try. I'm oh, glad to you, see you. Yeah. My only favorite, so that that should count for something. Are you, I'll take are, it. <laughs> are, you, are you Olympic medalist, Wade Gilbert, now? Is that part of your official title? Or? Well, it's funny. My friends were quite disappointed when I arrived back. For of course, first thing they said is, "Show me the medal. I want to. I want to hold the medal. I want to try the medal on." So I don't have a medal. What are you talking about? Coaches don't win medals. Athletes win medals. So yeah, no, no medals. So I could say I'm a, I'm a coach of Olympic medalists. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I, I, I kind of want to start there because I know you're a you're a proud Canadian, and it was you know quite a, a journey for you and the team so just kind of talk through like what that meant to you to be able to work with the the softball team and and go through that in Tokyo with them yeah it was an incredible opportunity to make history that's how we framed the whole mission we we decided to rally the team around a mission a moonshot we actually tied it into the Apollo 11 uh, mission and when we when I first had the idea for that it was the, the around the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 mission so there was a lot of uh, media attention around that and then also as I dug deeper into it Canadians played a significant role in that mission as well and um, so we we built everything around this this moonshot you know let's do some let's aim for doing something no one else has ever done and I did a bit of research to, to frame it and no Canadian women's team had ever won a summer Olympic medal, uh, gold medal, sorry, gold medal. And so why not us? And it wasn't, it wasn't some pipe dream, like, you know, we're ranked 14th in the world and we're going to somehow rise up and win a gold medal. It, you know, they're ranked third in the world. They've won uh, gold and silver at the Pan Am Games in the last few years. Uh, bronze at the world championships like they were there they, they had a chance if they did everything right and we prepared them well so that was our moonshot and um, they had never won the program had never been five olympics they've been to every time softball's been in the olympics they've been they qualified but they've never won a medal so of course gold was our target um it was heartbreaking to not have a chance to play for gold but they lost to the US and Japan, number one and number two in the world, both one nothing games. The Japan game was extra innings, 0-0. Japan's the best team in the world, they end up winning the gold. So, you know, you're, you're one play, one throw, one swing from a gold medal game. And historically, that those would be 
you know, seven, nothing games, 10, nothing games. So they're, they showed they're, they're among the best in the world and they deserve to be respected for that. And then winning the bronze, like they always say, you lose silver and win bronze. So they winning the bronze was great because you finish on a win. Um, and they still made history by winning the first ever Olympic medal for the program. And then a few days later, the women's soccer, Canadian soccer team won the first, they, they got our moonshot. They won the first ever gold medal for a, a summer Olympic uh, women's team. Yeah, it was, it was a fun couple of days to be here. That's for sure. And, and again, even the context of the summer Olympics, it's funny for me as an Australian seeing the reverse mm-hmm. in Canada. Mm-hmm. So the, the focus on the winter Olympics and everyone knows all the winter Olympians and, you know, like our moguls skier will be the, the most, mm-hmm. you know, uh, most mm-hmm. well-known person at the Olympics. And, and then in Australia, it's the other way around. It's our swimmers and our mm-hmm. you know, basketball teams and, and summer Olympics is the focus, mm-hmm. but, yeah, it was yeah. it was an amazing couple of days to be in Canada while those teams were yeah winning. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they uh, we we had a chance to to finish before soccer had their medal games, and um, but unfortunately, you had to leave the country within twenty four hours, so there was no opportunity to really celebrate or connect with other other athletes, other teams. Um, we finished at, uh, we were up till 4.30 in the morning that, that day, got three hours sleep, back up at 7.30 to pack and get on a bus to the airport. So that was it. <laughs> I want to talk to you about the future of coaching, but I'm going to throw myself a curveball here and actually just dive straight into what you were talking about there around theming because I think that is something that uh, head coaches can make better use of um, and and more reasoned use of, like you talked about. So it wasn't this just silly, like we're going to climb the entire mountain and we're, you know, ranked a hundredth and let's go and win a medal. It was quite considered and well thought out and, and even, you know, a little bit left fields in terms of NASA again, but you, you, then you're talking about the role that Canadians played in it. So yeah, maybe just talk a little bit more about theming because a lot of what I've heard of, has actually come out of rugby union, particularly in New Zealand. I know the Crusaders are huge on it. Scott Robertson's been on and we've talked about it, uh, how he themes their seasons, but how do you think about it and the, the different uses that you can get out of theming as a coach? Yeah, it's a fascinating area for me, and and I must admit I I came to it from other fields. It wasn't something I had heard or seen necessarily in sport. And thought, oh, we got to copy that. It was more being eclectic, I guess, in interacting with engineers and doctors and fighter pilots and military people and. And then just digging deeper into psychology and human behavior and emotions. And it really kind of started for me personally, I'm going to say maybe four or five years ago, and when I was traveling quite a bit and around a lot of different environments. And, you know, the con- everywhere, it doesn't matter what sport, what level, what country, everybody wants to win. So to, 
and, and, not, and obviously very few are going to win. So everybody's striving for the same thing with 99.9% of the teams and people not achieving that uh, to, you know, at the highest level. Right. So what else is there that will connect and, and pull people through this really hard process? So, you know, as all your experiences in coaching and, you know, there's lots of bad days and rough days and bad weather and bad calls and injuries and soreness. And so it, it has, to, anyway, it hit me like it has to be, there has to be something greater than chasing a trophy to sustain the effort and the motivation and, and the process. And I'm not the first one to think like that or talk about that, but I just started to dive into that more and so I started to push the groups that I was working with to think about the, the journey more, more deliberate and more systematic. So what's, yes, we're trying to win an Olympic medal. Good chance we won't. So what's going to sustain the effort and across years of training and upsets and disappointments? Because I want... I wanted them to think about, we, we can guarantee the type of journey that we have. So 20, 30 years from now, you're talking about this experience with your grandkids or what, whatnot, you open that shoe box and you got little mementos. Like you're, you're, gonna, you're gonna be able to talk about the journey and the process and have pride in that. And, 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 and so connect it back to emotions. And, and also I think what can pull a group together so I pulled a lot of that from military where everything's mission focused. So it, 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 it narrows, um, it narrows your attention on the immediate in a sense, like what we need, what do we need to be doing in terms of this mission? So everything is mission focused, but then why not name the mission? Let's have a theme for the mission and, and I noticed uh, the Melbourne Storm, they do a great job with that. In fact, I just was having a communication with uh, one of their coaches the other day about it. And now for the next season, what's the theme going to be? And it's very deliberate. It's very systematic. It's very well planned out in advance. And of course, you adjust across the mission. So you have a vision and a theme um, and activities and behaviors that align with that mission and that theme. And then you constantly recalibrate along the mission based on where you're at, injuries, setbacks, advances, whatever it might be. And then trying to feed them uh, messages and activities that nurture that theme or that mission focus along the way. And before you know it, you're you finished a mission and you've been on a journey, maybe you won, maybe you didn't win, but, but you've been true to the, to the theme and you've been true to the, the mission focus. Yeah. What was Storm's last season? Uh, I heard that they had a. They are working on the next one because they had a great season, but a disappointing finish. Yeah. And so they started to identify in their off-season debriefs and reflections, what were some of the gaps? Um, so they now they're trying to align the theme, which hasn't been set yet, but uh, align the theme to directly address those gaps from the past season. And that's that's what I've noticed with them in my experiences. They all it's 
the the theme is constantly refreshed based on what they feel the team needs and also the team composition, right? So they've had some very significant retirements and, and movement, player movement. So they understanding your personnel and and I think I had one of the other people that I really enjoy working with is Dan McFarlane in um, Ulster and the rugby in Ireland. And he's, he's fascinating the way he dives into the theming and the messaging. Um, and, and really, I think what I've seen too, is it's very nourishing for the coach as well, because it, it, it helps fill the coach's tank because it gives the coach hope and faith and energy um, to sustain their efforts as well. So if the coach has some ownership of that, or, you know, in many cases, I've seen it actually comes directly from the coach. It's something the coach is very passionate about um, that, that helps sustain their efforts as well. So it's not, it's not an act. It's not a show. It's something they feel very strongly about. What I've seen in my experience, that when they feel really strongly about it, it has more impact. Like with Dan, he had finished reading a book and we were talking about it. And I said, well, you make that the theme because he was so passionate about what he learned in this book. It's well, why? It's right there. You're searching for something that's right in front of you. Use, use that. Let's try that. Yeah, I found it also kind of normalizes the ups and downs and kind of the, I guess the natural perception of the ups and downs of a season and kind of like that you get forced on these things by the game or by history, you know, like beating, beating teams that are down the bottom by a certain amount of points and all these kind of garbage things that ultimately tend not to matter, but you can get down on yourself because you didn't beat someone by enough. So, and, and I think theming tends to help normalize that and say, well, the, the mission was to get four points or to get a W or to get whatever the margin ultimately, you know, doesn't really matter. Like did the mission succeed or did it fail? And, and I think it helps create a bit of a, a guardrail for particularly coaches just to normalize their emotion a little bit rather than going through like drastic ups and downs. We didn't beat Burnley by enough goals. And you're like, it's a Premier League game, mate. Like you, you won, mm. you got the three points. Chill out, <laughs> chill out a little bit. Mm. Yeah, I, I know I would agree. And again, it provides direction. And, um, and it also, I, I, I think that the emotional component, like if you can connect it, if you can connect the theme and things related to the theme to, to personal interests or uh, make personal connections, then it's, you're basically recognizing the journey and we have, we have a direction for the journey and we have a purpose for the journey. And so at some point you don't even, you're not even, explicitly discussing wins and points and things and stats. And it's funny. Um, one of the things I used with the team was masterclass, the, um, you know, the series of lessons from different experts in different fields. And I made custom classes uh, based on what I thought the team would need. And 
one of the last ones we watched before we left for Japan was Wayne Gretzky's and Wayne Gretzky, it had just been released. And Mm -hmm. one of the things he talked about was he said when they were, they won four championships in a row. And, you know, if he hadn't been traded, arguably they, who knows, they might've won nine or 10, but they, they're a, a very good example of a team that had high level success for a long time. And he said, when we were in the middle of that, we would, uh, we had a saying that we used in the locker room, statistics are for losers. Like if you're worried about your goals, your assists, your whatever, wins, losses, point differentials, let other, let losers, losers worry about stats. We only (laughs) care about winning and it doesn't matter how we win or who scored. It's, are we as a group, as a team, as an organization doing everything that's going to put us in a position to make us better tomorrow? And who, honestly, who cares what the stats are? And so meanwhile, they're breaking records in all the statistical categories while they're doing this because they're, they're really just focusing on getting better and holding each other accountable. Um, so I, I think I noticed uh, with our Olympic team in particular that it it also provided some space to, um, like you, you use the word normalize, but I also think it's it provides some space to humanize the experience. So we did things along the journey that made sense and fit, and we didn't know in advance, but you're constantly evaluating and observing and that would align and connect back to the mission. So we actually presented their official Olympic jerseys to them in Cape Canaveral at the viewing platform across the water from the launch pad of Apollo 11. And they'll remember that the rest of their lives, whether they want a medal or not, they're going to remember that moment. And, and that helps. Those types of things help strengthen the team bond. Um, the, not only the connection to each other, but the connection to the mission. I've heard you talk before about, you know, performance is performance and coaches thinking of themselves as performers. What do you mean when you say that? Like, where, where is your head going? Because I've... I've talked about this idea a little bit as well, and I, I kind of have it as one of the key facets of the future of coaching in that we've kind of dug ourselves into a little bit of a hole here in terms of that pure servanthood idea and taking on so much that we can't actually get to our own performance. Is that where you're going with it too? Or do you have some different ideas around when you say, you know, a coach as a performer or thinking of themselves as a performer? Yeah, that, that's a fascinating topic too. Um, and I really appreciate, I actually brought your book uh, with me to the Olympics and I gave a copy to our head coach and said, hey, you should, you know, take a look at this because I, I, I found in your book, you helped them. It's, it's a way for coaches to understand they're not alone. You're not crazy this is hard, this is isolating. Um, but yeah, there's ways to cope with that and to get better through this. And so I, I think for me, it became evident 
when I was doing more work with the U.S. Olympic teams, and they're not all different sports, they're, they're coaches, and seeing how frayed, not afraid, but frayed uh, they were um, because, and I don't, again, I don't think it was ever like part of a job description, right? It's just they, they took so much ownership of the, the experience in trying to get it right for staff, for athletes, for the organization, for boards of directors, stakeholders, sponsors. So they're constantly giving, 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 emptying their tank in a sense, right? And we would never expect that of an athlete or a musician or a fighter pilot or, you know, anyone in any performance domain. You can't just simply give all the time. And so where, where do they get to reach? Like who's it, who's supporting them? Right. And especially as sport, high level sport has shifted. I've seen anyways, um, more and more to recognizing the athlete experience, athlete, mental health, the athlete experience, the athlete journey. And so all these support systems around, around an athlete. And I actually in workshops often with high performance coaches, I'll do an activity where they have a sheet of paper with like a, a wheel with spokes on it, the hub and say, so, okay, for an athlete, put all the support you have around your athletes, all sports psych, uh, physio, massage therapist, agents, teammate, you know, easy to fill a whole page. So, okay, turn the page over, put the coach now in that, in that hub. Who's supporting the coach? <laughs> no one, right? So if, if you're, you would never do that to an athlete and understanding that, you know, so if you think of yourself and what you're doing as a performance and you're a performer, just like your athlete's a performer, where's your pre-performance plan? Where's your support network? Where's your debriefing sessions and recovery sessions? You know, where does that go? Oh, I don't have time for that. We've never let, that would never be an acceptable excuse for an athlete. Like if your athlete came in and, and didn't go through their um, post-game recovery routine or their pre-game routines and things like that, and said, ah, yeah, hey, Cody, I noticed you just took off yesterday and went into a meeting. You didn't do your post-game recovery routine. Yeah, yeah, I didn't have time. No, no, that, you have to do that. That's not optional. Well, why is it, why don't we do it as coaches? Because you, you have to, you're, you have to be on as well, right? And, and I started to push coaches a little bit and said, you know, really, every time you're in front of people, you're performing. A team meeting is a performance. A staff meeting is a performance. Running a practice is a performance. So how, how do you prepare to make sure you're ready to perform? Yeah, and you know when you start to pull on that thread and you think about the function of a coach, you know our, our role is to essentially notice things, to be aware, point them out to people, communicate and make decisions based on what you've seen and, and what you've communicated now, at a really, really basic level in the team. That's kind of the core functionality. And so then you start to go, okay, well, awareness, communication and decision-making all decline when 
you know, someone is in a state of depletion. And it's at a point now where we're talking about severe depletion, you know, like reports of Doc Rivers coaching on IV drips, you know, because he can't stand up, like severe depletion. So, yeah, this is where I kind of stumbled into things a little bit. I wasn't anticipating to, you know, be talking about this kind of thing off the back of the book, but it just seems that so often, again, that's really the switch that we're struggling with, the switch to change to a performer and what that means. And that means tough conversations with athletes to say, actually, I'm not going to be in my office because I'm going to be at home with my wife cooking her dinner because that actually makes me a better coach and here's why. And, and so, you know, that's what, I, that's what I spend a lot of my time on now is, is trying to massage the whole kind of coaching ecosystem to acknowledge that and then, you know, show other stakeholders in, around the team why that's going to be beneficial because ultimately the impact on the, the players has to improve. And then, I mean, if you keep going on that line, if we're doing this on fumes right now, like how great a job are coaches doing on fumes? If, if we're in a pure state of depletion right now, imagine how good it can be if we start to get this right. Yeah, no, I, I agree hundred percent. And I think that's why I found it. It kind of resonates with coaches when you, when you ask them questions about their athletes and their performance and things that you would expect for a performer to be in a position to be able to yeah. perform. Yeah. And why, why would it be any different for, for you? Yeah. And, and similarly, you know, again, further up the chain, other stakeholders, executives, general managers, you know, the, the, the science of the performance is all there. We know it because we're supposed to be the experts in it for our athletes. And so proving it out as a concept should be the easiest thing in human history. Like it's, it's, this is what we do. We're, we're supposed to understand the limits of human performance and uh, what can and can't be done. So, mm -hmm. yeah. And, and I think helping educate the, the other stakeholders stakeholders around the coach so a general manager a team owner um a board of directors you know uh, people who make the hiring and firing decisions on the coaches and helping them really understand the the impact of support and development for your coaches as an investment so you're you know at the highest levels right you're investing tens of millions of dollars into people and then you're kind of just hoping <laughs> like thing you would never give an athlete a hundred million dollar contract and just hope they get it right. But we do it with coaches and I, you know, well, I assume they're getting better and they're taking care of themselves and doing what they need to do. And well, why, why wouldn't we invest in that and, and support that? Yeah. I, I actually think it's even worse than that. I think it's we're paying you so much money that we expect you to put up with all this shit. Maybe, yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. And, and part of that comes across. And so, but ultimately we land in the same spot in that I wholeheartedly agree with you in that this is an investment and whether it's an investment in the, in the coach or if you view it as an investment in the team 
and an indirect, like massive impact on the team, it's still worthwhile. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, if you're going to have, and again, some of the things I talk to coaches about in this space is just, you know, even the energy that you bring into a room, um, but always relating it back to the athlete. So would, would that be, would it be acceptable for an athlete to come in and bring that energy into a team meeting or not be fully prepared or be thinking about something else? We wouldn't, that, like those are standards that are are um, non-negotiable um, with our teams and team culture. Talk about team culture. Well, that that's you. So again, you you know reinforcing you're performing too, and your your attitude, the way you carry yourself, um, all those things make a difference. Um, and so, what are we doing to help make sure you're ready to perform? And I think you see that maybe, maybe, well, you tell me what you see, but I, I think with coaches, when they start their career, they, they go until they hit that limit. They push, 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 push themselves. Right. And then they get sick or they get burned out or they miss something and they get fired. And then there's like an, an awakening. It's like, Ooh, yeah, I can't, if I get another shot at this, I can't do it like that again. And then they, they, in a sense, slow down, right? Slow down to get more. Yeah. Absolutely. So Anthony Seabold was one of my yeah. guests on here and um, talking of, you know, rugby league in Australia and, uh, you know, the, the, um, the atmosphere down there. And, you know, I asked him, he was, you know, at the Brisbane Broncos. So the, 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 biggest club with the, the most media attention in a city that is just rabid about this one team. And I said to him, what would you do differently now having you know, had success, gone to a big club? He's like, I'd have a day off. Mm-hmm. It's like when I was at my best, I had one day off Monday or Tuesday of the week or whatever. And I'd spend it with my wife and you know, I might flick a few emails around, but ultimately it was my off day. He's like, that, mm-hmm. was, that would be the one change that I would make. It just created that gap. And, and that's, mm-hmm. that's the thing is we're not saying revamp everything so that you're never there and, you know, the players don't have access and, you know, information stops flowing nicely. It's like you can just have a day off and not go into yeah. the, the arena. And that can mm-hmm. be the difference. Well, and, and part of that then relates to your staff and having trust in your staff and developing your staff. So you don't, when you're not there, you're not worrying about what's not getting done or getting done the way I want it done because you're empowering, you hire people around you uh, that, that you can build and that you trust and you empower them to have ownership of that experience as well. But if you try and micromanage everything, then yeah, it's not going to last long. Keep going along this plane here. I want to talk a little bit about emotion and you know maybe emotional management, maybe would be the term. But but essentially, I also see a, a pretty substantial gap in uh, even just the acknowledgement of emotions in the game around sports um 
you know, use of emotion with teams and even kind of how we recognize that we're socialized to either talk about emotion, not talk about emotion, not recognize. What do you see in, in that space? Uh, again, something that I've spent a lot of time on from the, the coaching perspective. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, we, we seem to, to use a, a, a Susan Davidism, but we seem to lack emotional agility and the ability to kind of navigate and and have some agility around how we're using emotion for positivity, as opposed Mm to, you know, again, coaching is traditionally associated with the big rev up speech and the, you know, the war story and the, you know, get, get all masculine and, and pumped up and testosterone and go out there and beat the other team down. But it can be it can be used so much more positively than just that blunt force trauma. Yeah, the the more just listening to you and reflecting and and thinking about my experiences, I would equate emotional intelligence or emotions with vulnerability. So we don't even need to explicitly talk about emotions, um, but if if we if we focus on building an environment and skills, individual skills and team skills around humility, open communication, being vulnerable, that, that gets to the emotional component. Because if, if you're having open, direct conversations with people, they're going to be emotional. They're, they're going to be hard sometimes. Going to, there's things that you have to say and do that are uncomfortable. And so if you don't have the emotional agility or stability or emotional intelligence, whatever framework you want to use to navigate those moments, those are potentially very destructive moments for a team. And so we work really hard with the Olympic team in particular, you know, we, it's it's a constant um, sharpening of your skill set, your human skill set, right? So yeah, I love that. You know, we bring in lots of different guest speakers, and we have workshops, and you know, it could be a Navy SEAL, could be someone who's an expert in emotional intelligence, could be me, could be watching videos and debriefing things. It could just be us and. We have a team session. We have a team barbecue. We, you know, I, I like music uh, connecting because music has a very strong emotional connection. So try and use music as much as possible in, in sessions, workshops, and events. And, um, and so it, it's no one, my experience, it's no one thing. Um, it's constant work. <laughs> I think if I was to write another book, the title, I know someone already used this title, but it might be Relentless. It's just, you have to be relentless in, in teaching and reinforcing and supporting these skills. And, and I really do believe they're, they're skills and they're teachable. Um, so I have seen, uh, um, so, you know, some coaches maybe are, uh, tentative or hesitant to invest too much training time in those types of things. Um, either they feel like other people can deal with it or the athletes can figure it out. Um, but I think 
unless you're investing time and space and resources on a regular basis into um, building those skills, there. I wish I could say, you know, this event directly led to this Olympic medal. You know, like th this workshop was different. It was a key, but it, it was. I can't say it was any one thing. It was this, the sum of being relentless in constantly teaching and reinforcing these skills. And I think my role, it didn't have to be me or even, you know, my official role as mental performance coach, but I, I see it having someone in the team, in the organization that can play the role of catalyst. So someone who can stimulate those conversations that are needed to be had, empower people to have those conversations, encourage and support them. Because I think it's hard, easy for a coach to lose sight of some of that because of all the other responsibilities and demands they have on them. Um, so, you know, who, who, who would, in a, you know, you see it in different terms, like, you know, a culture keeper, a culture keeper, a performance coach, a sports psych, whatever it might be, but having some, it could be an assistant coach, right. But having someone who's really deliberately paying attention to the temperature of the team, right. How, how people connect or don't connect, um, and addressing that. Yeah. I just can't get away from the kind of well saying i guess like emotion drives thought thought drives behavior behavior drives performance so i think we've done a really good job at getting to the the thought and the behavior and the performance so that leaves the emotion which is actually the catalyst for that whole chain and so you know particularly you know my whole experience has been coaching young men and this is why i keep coming back to like the socialization is they're not even taught to recognize emotion up or down let alone be able to talk about it and so that becomes part of the education process particularly when it's going to be emotion that in the last two minutes of a grand final is going to regulate their whole performance experience in that your chest is burning. You can't hear anything. If you make a mistake, 40,000 people are going to be on you and your, your head starts to rattle. Cause you're like, what is going on here? I can't even, you know, I can't even understand what I'm thinking. And it's basically my, my raw emotions are going to get me through or us through as a group, you know, for me, it, if you're not addressing that and you're pledging that you're doing everything to allow your team to win, you are lying as far as I'm concerned. Mm -hmm. you, are not, mm -hmm. you are not doing everything to allow your team to win. Mm -hmm. Anyone that's been yeah. in the last two minutes of a championship game <clears throat> will tell you that is the experience. You have no idea what's going on. And mm -hmm. so if you're not talking through emotion and helping, mm -hmm. <laughs> and helping them understand, you're not doing everything. Yeah, no, I agree hundred percent. That's why it has to be deliberate, systematic, relentless. Um, I'm a big believer in moments. So recognizing moments, uh, moments and places. Um, so as we were going along the journey, we, you know, 
again, I am looking for that. So I'm, and I'm, I'm not the only one, but I'm, and I'm trying to get feedback from team captains and, and coaches and, um, so that you can, you can pause as a team and say, okay, this, this is a significant moment. Um, let's, let's be in this moment. Let's be aware of this moment. Let's kind of talk about this moment. Um, and they don't have to be long drawn out, you know, interactions, but just being more sensitive and aware of those moments that potentially could be significant along that journey and recognizing those emotions um, and, and, and doing it collectively. Yeah. So one of the reasons you are my favorite pracademic is that I know that in thinking through writing your book, you focused on moments because that's what coaches talk about and what coaches do they don't do four quadrants you know physiology psychology technical tactical they don't actually think like that we think in moments and and our day is full of those moments and you know part of what i've been working on has been really starting to think through the craft of those moments so you know if i were to look future facing at head coaching i see two things i see effectiveness so is what is being taught being learnt, and, and i mean that in terms of learning being the key did they learn it and then the other piece being craft so what are what is that toolbox look like for a coach to be able to basically use the whole spectrum of tools that are in the toolbox to navigate the nuance of coaching a team so, you know, great, you've got this, this four quadrants thing or you've done your master's in science, but what do you say to them when they've lost four on the bounce and mm-hmm. they are sitting there in the locker room, a demoralized mm-hmm. bunch of human beings? Mm-hmm. There, is, there is nothing in there to say, what do you say? Do you give them a rocket and maybe lose them? Do you try to comfort them? Do you push them again? Mm-hmm. Do you... And so, okay. yeah, talk me through your idea of like th- those kind of moments and the, the real craft of coaching in those, you know, it might just be a two minute little thing that mm-hmm. changes the, the complexion of a, a team or a season. Uh, I, I think that you, you need principles and you need a compass. So that's why I often differentiate best practices from best principles. And you read a book like legacy or you read, you know, whatever, spend time with a, a team and you see, Oh, look what they do to how they start a practice or look at the chant they use in the locker room. It's not, it's not the chant. It's not the routine. It, it's the principle behind the practice. So the principle is they do something where they come together and they share a moment before they go out and start. Okay. So, how can I use that principle in my environment to create something or navigate moments in a way that is consistent with, with our values, our culture, our environment. And so it's less about, I think, and this is actually a chapter I might write in my next book. It's, it's less about um, what, what should I do in this moment and more about, what do they need in this moment? Like, well, what, what's the underlying 
principle that should be driving what I decide to do in this moment. So I'll give you a real example. And this hit me, I was just walking the dogs the other day and I, I coach a hockey, ice hockey team right now. Well, um, there's three of us that are coaching this team. It's a, a competitive youth team for 14 year olds, 13, 14 year olds. And we lost a game 10, nothing yesterday. And the other team was very, very good. Probably should be in a higher division, but anyways, we lost. So we're walking from the bench to the locker room, walking across the ice after the game. And it didn't hit me at the moment because I'm so lost in statistics and listening to the head coach and his ideas. And what are we going to say when we walk into the room, the players are waiting for us. And I didn't have the awareness in that moment to just stop and stop the other coaches and say, hold on, before we walk into that locker room, let's take 30 seconds. What do we think they really need right now? It's not, what are we going to say? It's, you know, what, what, what do they need and what are the principles that should be guiding whatever decision we make here right now? And so of course we go in the locker room and the head coach rattles off 40 things they did wrong. We need to work on and need to get better at, and, you know, every kid has their head down and this is a great coach. He's a great guy. I'm not uh, dumping on this coach. We all do this. And, and it just hit me after I said, they, they didn't need us in that moment. That group of kids didn't need three old guys telling them all the things they did wrong. How does that help them at all? How does that team help that team get better? What they probably needed in that moment, early in a season, to build ownership and reinforce some of our principles, like to be a great player, you got to own, you got to take ownership. This has to be, you know, players have to uh, take ownership of this experience. You individually have to take ownership of what you're going to get better at and how you're going to get better. So. I think a better strategy in that moment was in that moment with that team would have been walk in, go around the room. Okay, guys, one at a time. What's one thing that you're going to work really work on this week in practice to help us not be in a situation where we lose like that again, get completely out of play. That would have been way more powerful for those kids and reinforcing our principles and our values. So really the 10 minutes of us rattling off all the things they did wrong, we need to get better at probably did nothing for those kids. Um, so again, I, I think in terms of moments, number one, stop, right? So before you jump into action, stop and breathe. And if you do have a, with a staff, take a pause. Okay. What do we think they need right now? And how does it does what we're thinking of doing does that align reinforce teach our values and our principles with this group and then and then, and then there's still no guarantee you're going to get it right but you're going to be making i think better decisions that align with how the, the the type of environment that you're trying to create it's interesting because i mean that is the default right the tell them all the mistakes do you think we still go a little bit too far with that idea? So yes, uh, learning from mistakes, seeing them from different perspectives, being able to reflect on them for an athlete, uh, definitely beneficial. Uh, I don't think there's any, you know, contrary science to that in, in any field, but 
bludgeoning people with their mistakes also seems to be um, a, a mistake. Um, and I think coaching is maybe still stuck in a little bit of that in terms of, yeah, just, you know, I, I've been with a couple of teams and that's all I've seen that they review. And so have you shown any vision of them at their best, you know, to reinforce what you're actually looking for? So like, no, we don't even keep those, those clips, only the ones where they messed up. And I'm like, well, that, that is kind of telling. Yeah. And again, you can tie it back to emotions. Um, are they emotionally ready in those moments to receive the message that you want to give them? So really often when we do that, what you just described and what I described, we're doing it for us. We're doing it to meet our needs. I need, I feel like I need to tell them all the things they did wrong, but that's not what they need in that moment. Emotionally, that's not what they need in that moment. And again, I don't want to generalize because every team and every situation is different. But mm -hmm. I think if you kind of pause not to reflect on principles and values, but then also connect back to the emotion, like emotionally, what what are they going to be most receptive to digesting in a sense in this this moment? Maybe it's nothing. Maybe it's shut up, get out of the room. <laughs> you don't always have to intervene. Uh, in fact, the best coaches are really good at that. They're, they're good at understanding when to get out of the way. And I would say that was something that our, the team Canada staff did really well. Um, when we got to the Olympics, you know, we, we had a sense that this team was a very senior team, player led team. They've grown a lot, very mature, you know, honestly, coaching at this point is more likely to get in the way <laughs> like our the best thing we can do with this particular team in this moment is support be available and kind of get out of the way don't mess it up um so but you have to have that requires a great deal of maturity as a coach as well right because you're feeling like uh, if i'm not doing something i'm not doing my job i'm not coaching i need to be in there saying things doing things moving things um when sometimes you don't but again that that's why it's, it's so um like you use the word craft you know that that's craft wisdom knowledge that only comes really from experience and experimenting and trying things. So having the courage to have the coach to, to experiment. So going into those moments and I don't know if it's going to work, but this is what I think this group or this athlete needs in this moment. I, do you have the courage to do that? Yeah. Even the kind of core idea around mastery masters of craft is actually quite profound in terms of the coaching journey as well in that you know you go from apprentice to journeyman to you know essentially you you present a masterpiece um, mm. to become a master it's where all the, that terminology comes from and you know yeah it requires the experience and it requires the work and the testing and the failure and the you know, yes, you look at masters as these people who can look at complexity and assemble something quite simple or quite profound out of some sort of complexity. 
but in, unless you've done that that prior work and in our case it's that time around teams you know the absorption of all these different moments over years of being around the team and the feel in the dressing room like until you've felt what it's like to yeah have the bottom drop out of a team to have a team at war with each other to have that ecstasy to feel those you know i, I use the example for an athlete like those last two minutes of a of a championship game you know those are two minutes of a championship game for coaches too and you i don't think you you really breathe in those couple of minutes as a coach like until you've kind of felt that you can't really get to that that masterpiece or that sense of mastery of of the craft of coaching so yeah at the at the bare bones of it i, I really like just the model because it it makes you think about it in that same way as a carpenter or a chimney cleaner or and developing mm. their craft yeah there's some good literature and research around uh communities of practice and how that aligns with how we should develop coaches maybe um there's a good group out of the university of ottawa that's done some good research in that area um and yeah everything you just talked about in terms of the apprenticeship model and and, and how you how you learn your trade or your craft um and some of the things we do now formally are are um can play a role but it's it's i don't view it as an as an either or type of situation where it's this way of training and certification or um preparation or, or this way it's it's always and um so you, you do need the formal training and the workshops and certifications and things like that because they provide the, the foundation for creativity and reflection so it, and and allows you to be in a position to i think draw from more more examples and more principles um when you're apprenticing when you're in the field mate i'll let you go but no one will let me off the hook unless i ask you this are you seeing anything or is anything ruminating or resonating with you at the moment that is kind of captivating you in the coaching world that you want to tell people about either a you know, have you seen anything, heard a podcast, read a book? Uh, you know, again, you're, you're looked to for what's coming for coaches. So is there anything that's really standing out to you at the moment? Uh, yeah, I'm always like you, you know, you're, I know you're sent, you always send out, um, I think you've been sending out good reads or things like that lately. And, um, so you're always trying to, to, hone your craft and, and get better. Um, a former very prominent now Olympic coach um, who now works in a different role. Uh, he switched countries and he um, is a high performance director and, and I'm probably embarrassed to, to say this, but Ryan Holiday and his work, his books, uh, this one in particular, The Obstacles Away, I had never read them and he was going through some challenges recently and said, you should take a look at these books. Um, they've really helped me. And, and I, I think that was, um, you, I'm sure you find the same thing. It's rare, you know, the more you read and the more you're learning, um, it's, it becomes increasingly rare that you're, 
amazed or shocked or come across something that, oh my gosh, where, I had, where did this come from? I had never heard of this idea. So the ideas are repackaged through, you know, through the, the author's frame of reference. And that's great. And that's fine. You know, they put their own spin on it and add their stories and their anecdotes. So these types of things just really reinforced for me the, the timeless principles, uh, you know, process, being present, uh, be human, connect with emotions, connect. We're in the people business. Uh, so anything you can do to kind of build those types of skills will make you a better coach. And going through that, um, that master class, uh, I really would recommend people consider that as, as a, a resource to either for yourself personally as a coach, or I see Gino Oriema, the basketball coach now has a class on there. I, I didn't watch it yet, but it's, it gives you an opportunity to get out of sport. Like when we were using it for our team, I would go through and I would pull out lessons from all different artists and make custom lessons of about an hour long each one. And, and so a customized lesson might have uh, 15 minutes from Usher and 10 minutes from Christina Aguilera and eight minutes from uh, Steph Curry and then a few minutes from Chris Hadfield, an astronaut, you know? So they, what I found is when you expose, and just like us as coaches, it would apply as well, equally as well, but when we expose our athletes to similar messages from different voices at some point it clicks for them like oh yeah <laughs> so if they just hear it from you or just hear it from uh, an athlete or someone else like one person it may or may not stick but if they hear it from six different athletes and an astronaut and a poker player and you know and the common theme here is all these people are best in the world oh yeah i guess that is important yeah <laughs> maybe i should start doing that yeah it's funny isn't it i've heard simon sinek talk about that uh with Brene brown actually he's like i'm not the first person to talk about purpose mm -hmm. he's like mm -hmm. i don't even know why kind of my idea stuck and mm -hmm. i mean the idea stuck because it's a great idea and it's packaged really really well mm -hmm. um, and but yeah he, he's kind of sitting there being like i don't know <laughs> why, you know why why me kind of thing and um yeah that i'll just add on top of yours the two that have struck me most recently that i can't stop talking about is belonging by owen eastwood mm. and also fearless by pippa grange so again you know belonging and fear there's a lot of resources about those things but you know from a, a sporting context uh, they've really freshened them up and, and modernized them and and two topics that are so valuable in any team environment or uh, in any individual sport endeavor as well. Um, so I'd recommend those two from, from my angle, if you're listening, mate, yeah, where, can, where can people find you or follow along with you? Um, I'm, I'm still somewhat active on my Twitter account. Um, I'm doing uh, quite a few podcasts lately. Um, so I guess, Anything that I have to share that's new, I would probably post out through my Twitter account. Brilliant, mate. Um, like I said, I, I wasn't going to be able to wrap up where others won't without having you on. 
I know mm. you've been a huge advocate of the show and, and shared, you know, at coaching conferences and things like that. So thank you from me for, you know, being a, a fan of my work and taking an interest in my work. And yeah, mate, always love chatting to you. So thanks for coming on. No, the, the coaching profession is better with you in it. There's no doubt about it. We need, need your voice and your ideas and, and the passion that you bring to, to helping people get better. Awesome, mate. Thanks a lot, mate. Thank you. Hey, I hope you enjoyed that episode. Thanks for listening all the way to the end. As always, if you'd like to get in touch with me, head to codyroyal.com or you can find me on Twitter. See you next time.